Isn't that such a great song? Um, written by a guy named Aaron Keyes. Somebody mentioned to me today even that they like it when I mention uh, certain uh, authors or musicians that we would recommend and encourage you to, to listen to and read. And so uh, I would recommend Aaron Keyes. And uh, that's just one of a number of really, really good songs that he's uh, composed. And uh, you can tell he's a godly guy. And he knows the Bible. Uh, and he's been through some uh, some rough patches in his life, right? You can't write a song like that unless you've experienced something like that, right? And so uh, recommend him, commend him to you. And what, a, what an appropriate song for us to sing uh, as we are studying the book of Esther. And so uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 2. And uh, also remind you as you're turning there that uh, not only do we have a sermon uh, outlines and application questions in the back. We also have a little half-sheet outline uh, of the entire book, kind of the big picture of Esther. Uh, and so if you missed one of those, you don't have that tucked away here in the first few pages of Esther, I want to encourage you to grab one. You can do it right now if you want, so you don't forget, or grab one on the way out and just stick it here in the front of the book. And so we can just refer back to this uh, over the next eight or nine weeks as we go through this book together. Uh, but it just kind of gives you the big picture and Hopefully that's, that's of some help to you. Now Esther is the only book in the Bible that is devoted entirely to the subject of God's providence. But there are numerous other stories throughout God's word that instruct us and illustrate for us the, the marvelous, mysterious workings of his providence. Probably the most familiar of these uh, would be the story of Joseph. And this remarkable illustration of divine providence unfolds in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. So you don't have to turn there because we don't have time to read that entire portion. But I assume that you're familiar with the story. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, the father of Israel. His brothers hated him and his multicolored coat that unfortunately his father had given him and was a sign of some kind of favoritism there, which doesn't always go well when you play favorites with your kids. But nevertheless, uh, on top of that, uh, Joseph had a couple of dreams indicating that his brothers would one day bow down to him, which you can imagine they love that. They're bowing down to their younger brother. Well, his brothers ended up plotting to kill him, and they threw him in a pit, and they were deliberating about what to do. And instead of killing him, they sold him to a caravan heading to Egypt. And they lied to their father, saying he was killed by a wild beast. Well, when he arrived in Egypt, Joseph was sold to a high-ranking official of the Pharaoh named Potiphar. And Joseph faithfully served as the master of Potiphar's house until he was thrown into jail when Potiphar's wife, the original desperate housewife, uh, who had relentlessly tried to seduce Joseph falsely accused him of trying to rape her. Well, the chief jailer put Joseph in charge of the other parishioners, or excuse me, the other parishioners, the other prisoners, and uh, yeah, you don't go to, you're not a prisoner in jail, you're a prisoner, right? Um, but this is kind of the pattern for Joseph's life. Everything he touched turned to gold. Everybody who met him thought, we got to put this guy in charge uh, and so that's what happened in jail. And so one day Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker offended the, the Pharaoh, and he locked them in the same jail as Joseph. And uh, during that time, they both had dreams which Joseph interpreted for them. 
And the baker was hanged, and the cupbearer was restored, just as Joseph had predicted, but the cupbearer forgot to put in a good word for Joseph. Until two years later, when Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret, and the cupbearer remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh how this guy that he had been in prison with had accurately interpreted his dream when he was in prison, and so he went, uh, he went to get him. And uh, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and he was so impressed with his wisdom, he made Joseph second in command over all of Egypt. His main job was to oversee the collection and storing of food in preparation for the coming worldwide famine. And when the grain ran out in the land of Canaan, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy some grain. And when they arrived in Egypt, Joseph recognized them. And after finding out by his father, or excuse me, about his father and his younger brother Benjamin and testing their honesty and integrity, Joseph finally revealed to his brothers who he was. And obviously his brothers were shocked, and not just shocked, they were scared. Because they thought now he was going to get his revenge, an exact payback for what they had done to him. And Joseph quickly comforted them by helping them see how God's providence was behind all that had taken place. And at that glorious reunion, it's as if God opened up Joseph's eyes to see how it was God's providential hand mysteriously at work behind the scenes the entire time. And looking back over all those difficult years during which it was impossible to discern what in the world God was up to, it all finally made sense. If you do want to turn back there, because it's, it's so good, this is Genesis 45, verse 5. This is the words of Joseph to his brothers. Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it, is not, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. And then you're right there. Turn to the last chapter, Genesis 50, verse 19. Again, when once uh, daddy died, Jacob had gone to be with the Lord, and now it was just Joseph and his brothers. That's when they thought, well, maybe now he's going to stick it to us. He didn't want to do that while dad was alive. Now he's going to do it. And this is what he said again in uh, uh, excuse me, Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Joseph was convinced that God had providentially positioned him in Egypt to be the savior of his people and preserve the nation of Israel from extinction. Now fast forward in Israel's history to the Jewish exiles in Persia where once again the existence of the Jews was threatened, not by a famine, but by a vengeful enemy out to destroy them. But as God did in Genesis, 
He anticipated this. And like a master chess player, he moved his players into position. God is never taken by surprise or caught off guard by circumstances like we often are. And he always has his people prepared and in place to accomplish his sovereign purposes. A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, said this, quote, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will wonder where they came from. And here in this chapter, chapter 2, we're going to meet two of God's heroes who God providentially put into place in Persia in order to rescue his people from a future plot to annihilate them. Now, let me just remind you, uh, at the end of the day, Esther and Mordecai are not the heroes of this story. Who's the hero of this story? God is. As it is with all the stories of the Old Testament, even the ones like David and Goliath, and we want to make David the hero and go, ooh, look at David, man, way to go with that slingshot, man. Well, he couldn't have missed. You couldn't have missed. Because it was God. It wasn't David, it was God. God gets the glory. He's the hero of every Old Testament story. But like Joseph, God sent ahead two ordinary people, a Jewish orphan girl named Esther and her her wise cousin Mordecai, in order to preserve many people alive. And we talked about this, that God's providence, you could define it as God's provision or God's protection or God's preservation of his people. Those are all, all those concepts are, are included in the concept of, of God's providence. And, and just like Joseph, Esther and Mordecai had no way of knowing what God was up to as the events of their lives unfolded. It wasn't until after the fact that they were able to look back and see the hand of God at work and all that happened to them and rejoice in the marvelous, mysterious providence of God. And this is good for us to, 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 to read and to study because when we are in the midst of trials and temptations and crises and, and challenges that, that all of us face in our lives, it's, it's hard for us to see God's hand at work and oftentimes we wonder, where is God? What is God up to? And again, that's why studying the book of Esther is so relevant, so practical, because it serves to sharpen our spiritual perception so we can more quickly and easily recognize his invisible hand at work in everything that happens to us. And and what's more, it, it will help us learn to rest in and rejoice over the providence of God whenever we find ourselves in what appears to be a bad, hopeless situation. Like yesterday, we had the community garage sale in our subdivision, right? Woohoo, garage sale. And, and so I go through my annual procedure of Kelly's got all the stuff out on the driveway and I'm in the process of cleaning my garage. It gets its annual cleaning, right? So I'm going around, you know, moving boxes and, you know, setting this up and doing that, whatever, wiping this down. And, and I noticed that there's water coming out from under our hot water heater. Thankfully, it's in the garage, right? Not in our attic somewhere. Like the crazy Californians, they, they put it up there, don't they? No, I'm just, maybe not. Um, so I'm like, oh, this is not good. And I look, and all of a sudden I'm looking, and I'm looking more, and I'm like, oh, this isn't good. There's like black mold, and we have a bunch of stuff around it, so we didn't see it, right, until I started pulling stuff away from it, right, to sell in the garage sale, right? So I'm like, 
uh, this isn't good. And uh, where does that back up to? Oh, that's our master closet. Hmm. So you walk in there, pull the clothes back, and sure enough, black mold stain on the wall. And you're like, oh, I wonder how long that's been there, right? So obviously initial response is, well, that's a bummer. How much is this going to cost? And here we go again. And, but then you think, wow, isn't God good? This is sweet providence, right? That, that could have gone on for many more months without us ever knowing it. But we had a garage sale, and I had to get in there and start moving stuff around. The Lord knew we needed to find that so we'd get it fixed. And um, that's, that's a piddly thing. I mean, how about when the Lord, uh, you, you feel something going on in your body, and you go to the hospital, and they, they, they're checking you out. And, well, that little something you thought was, you know, little, and it was minor. Well, they, in the process, found out that you had cancer. And, and they, you had some kind of tumor, and you're like, hey, you know what? That was God's providence that, right, I, I, I had something that brought me to the hospital. They started doing, and they found that so they could deal with it and address it and remove it and treat it. Again, the providence of God. We, we, need, to be, we need to sharpen our ability to see those things, to recognize those things, and, and give glory to whom glory is due, and, and to rest in it. And to remember, hey, you know what? God's in charge. He's in control. He could have, he could have made that different. That, that didn't have to happen, but that, that, that happened in the providence of God. And so yeah, I can rejoice over that, even though it might stink. I know that God's in control. Well, in, in chapter 1, last week, we were introduced to one of the main characters in the story, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. Xerxes was the name you might uh, be more familiar with. And he was, as we saw, the epitome of pagan living and thinking with all of its pridefulness, all of its foolishness, all of its ridiculousness. And despite his self-perceived and self-proclaimed glory and power, he was simply a pawn in the hand of God to carry out his will. Proverbs 21.1, we ended on this note. The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so while the actions and, and decisions of King, uh, King Ahasuerus that we saw last week may, might not have seemed like anything out of the ordinary for some pagan king back then, it was God's hand channeling and turning his heart to say and do certain things in order to make a way for Esther to become queen of Persia and use her position and influence to protect God's people from Haman's holocaust. And again, the point we saw last week was, hey, you know what? Bottom line, there's another king. This guy, Xerxes, called himself the king of kings. Well, he was a clown. He was a joke because the real king of kings, right, is the one who was actually working behind the scenes, directing everything in his life without him even knowing it. And again, at times, it, it, it may seem like our lives today, 21st century, are at the mercy of ungodly and unpredictable uh, actions or decisions. Or how about this? Maybe ungodly people and their unpredictable actions and decisions, like the president, like Congress, like maybe an unbelieving husband or a parent or a boss or a teacher. But we can rest assured in knowing that our lives are ultimately in God's hands, not their hands, that we're under His control. And no one can ever make any decision that will thwart God's plans for our world, our country, or our individual lives. And knowing this and reminding ourselves of this is what keeps us from freaking out. 
Anybody tempted to ever freak out? Like, oh my goodness, they're, they're about to do this. They're about to say, make this into a law. And we freak out. Or, or maybe you might be more tempted to take matters into your own hands. And let's go storm the Capitol again. You know, let's just take, I'm just saying, you know, we, we freak out and we take matters into our own hands. And, and here in chapter 2, we see God's hand moving once again. And specifically, he moves his two principal players into place through what appeared to the Jews, perhaps at the time, as simply some random insignificant events. I mean, just maybe some other newsworthy story, you know, in the, in the front page of the Persian Times or whatever. Uh, oh, Mordecai gets this, uh, you know, finds out that, uh, you know, or, or, or uh, blows this attempt, this, this uh, uh, assassination attempt. He exposes it and, oh, uh, a, a, a new, a, uh, the king has a new queen. Right? These are these are like front page stories, and oh, this is just kind of life in Persia. It happens all the time. Whereas God was moving his people around, like moving pieces in a game of chess. And 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 again, this chapter, we're gonna see God make two strategic moves. Two strategic moves. And that is Esther becomes the king's wife. That's the majority of the chapter. And then secondly, Mordecai saves the king's life. So Esther becomes the king's wife, Mordecai saves the king's life. More than just some front page stories or even maybe uh, editorials in the back section of some newspaper there in Persia. So let's look first of all at how Esther became the king's wife. And uh, what I want us to see as we go through these first 20 verses is, is, is how God displayed his providence in so many ways in Esther's rise to become the queen of Persia, okay? First of all, I think we see uh, God's providence in the king's desire for a new wife. Notice verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, it doesn't mention this in the text, but in that white space between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's four years that have passed since Vashti was deposed as the queen of Persia, and Ahasuerus had deposed her in the third year of his reign. This was now his seventh year. We know that from verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And again, it's helpful sometimes when you... Um, merge uh, world history into the text of Scripture and, and get a picture of what was going on outside the pages of Scripture at the same time. According to uh, secular history, in order to avenge his father's defeat in Marathon, Ahasuerus had directed a four-year military campaign against Greece. Okay, so this is all in the white spaces there uh, between verse 22 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. And you are probably familiar with this uh, incident that Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as he was known in, in the day, amassed a huge army and navy who were able to defeat the Greeks at, you remember what battle? Thermopylae, yeah. Some of you know uh, the story of 300, right? That movie that was so popular uh, about Leonidas, the Greek king of Sparta, who took his 300 men and went up against this massive army. Well, that was this guy. That was this king, King Xerxes. The great God King, as he was referred to and thought of himself. How ironic, right? 
But in the same year, 480 BC, they faced an embarrassing defeat at the famous Battle of Salamis, followed by another defeat in the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC. So, Ahasuerus returned home from battle humiliated. And according to the Greek historian Herodotus, he sought comfort and solace in his harem. During those nostalgic days, perhaps, he was reflecting on his relationship with Vashti and may, may have even been missing her and, and uh, perhaps regretted his foolish request of her and his rash decision to, to have her deposed in his drunken state. And so, again, what's going on here? Well, God is giving the king a desire for a new wife. God's channeling the heart of the king like a watercourse. And then we also see God's providence in the suggestion of the king's advisors. Again, these are all pagan people that God is using to accomplish his purposes. Keep that in mind. Verse 2, then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa to the harem into the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So Ahasuerus' advisors got wind that he was having second thoughts about Vashti, and they were concerned that if she regained the throne for some reason, that their own lives would be in danger because they were the ones that had recommended that he get rid of her. And so they quickly and shrewdly proposed that a search be made for the most beautiful virgin in Persia to replace Vashti as his new queen. And just so you know, this was not an empire-wide beauty contest. This was not the Miss Persia pageant where women would enter to win a chance to be the king's wives. These women were most likely taken by force. The word custody is used here. Um, They were likely ripped away from their families against their will and forced to be part of the royal harem. Warren Wearsby, who's a a commentator I love to to consult um, whenever I study a text, and this is what he said... He said, quote, I wonder how many beautiful girls hid when the king's officers showed up to abduct them. Heartbroken mothers and fathers, no doubt, lied to the officers and denied that they had any virgin daughters. Perhaps some of the girls married any available man rather than spend a hopeless life shut up in the king's harem. Once they had been with the king, they belonged to him and could not marry. If the king ignored them, they were destined for a life of loneliness shut up in a royal harem. Again, God's providence, even in the midst of all that. Well, again, we see God's providence in the capture of Mordecai's great-grandfather. Again, this is going way back here, but notice uh, verses 5 and 6. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom, excuse me, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So here was a man named Mordecai, which is a Babylonian name taken from the god Marduk, which you may remember when Daniel and his buddies got taken in exile, they gave them all new names. 
Uh, Daniel was called Belshazzar, which means Baal is God. So they were trying to indoctrinate these young men and really strip away any remembrance of their God, and so they renamed them, and this was likely the case with Mordecai. Uh, He was a Benjamite whose great-grandfather Kish had been taken into captivity by Babylon with King Jehoiachin in the second of three deportations back in 597 B.C. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 14 to 16. And so this is like, we're talking, this is, has to do with his past and how Mordecai got to where he was. It had something to do with his, his family lineage and what had happened to his great-grandparents and his grandparents and his parents, right? So much of God's providence is put on display in who we're related to and, and what, what happened in their past and how they ended up doing what they do or being where they are. And so when Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, took over Babylon some 70 years later after this deportation of all the Israelites to, to, to Babylon, he gave the Jews permission to return to Israel. And according to Ezra, the book of Ezra, which is, this is Esther, uh, you could insert that in between Ezra and Nehemiah. It comes after Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, but it's actually just kind of this little trilogy that all goes together in Ezra Excuse me, Esther took place at the same time frame as Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, according to Ezra chapter 1, about 50,000 Jews decided to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel and rebuild the walls under the leadership of Nehemiah. Mordecai was one who decided to stay behind in Persia, likely because while the Babylonians had made life difficult for the Jews, the Persians were much more lenient to aliens and many and, and, and strangers, so many Jews prospered there in the land of their captors, and so they decided to stay. And Mordecai, as we're going to see, earned an official position in the Persian government. He sat at the king's gate. Notice chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, so he had risen to a, a position of influence as well. Again, according to the providence of God. We also see the providence of God in the birth and the beauty of Esther. In the birth and the beauty of Esther. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here we're introduced for the first time to to Esther, this orphaned Jewish girl who was adopted by her cousin Mordecai, who raised her like his own daughter. Uh, Esther was her Persian name, which means uh, star, Ishtar, again, another one of their gods. Um, Her Hebrew name, though, was Hadassah, which means myrtle, which was a fragrant shrub or, or tree back then. Um, and in the prophets, that, that bush or that tree, myrtle, was to replace briars and thorns, which was a picture of God's forgiveness and restoration of his people. And so uh, that's a precious name, I'm sure, uh, that her parents gave her, Hadassah, to remember um, that, that she was uh, a representative of God's forgiveness and restoration of, of his people. Here they were uh, in exile, right, because of their sin, but God was going to forgive them and restore them. Uh, it says here that she was beautiful of form and face. 
So she had a pretty face and she had a nice figure. She was a knockout or a 10, if you will. Um, But again, that's all part of God's providence. One of the commentators that I really enjoy on Esther, his name is Derek Prime uh, from Great Britain. Um, Anyway, he wrote a book here, Unspoken Lessons About the Unseen God. And listen to what he says here. I think this is really good. This is really down-to-earth practical stuff. Um, Commenting on this, the fact that she was beautiful in form and lovely to look at. He said this was all part of God's gracious providence. We have no choice over the natural beauty or attractiveness with which we are born. We have little choice over the personalities we develop either. But God, our creator, has the power to make us what he wants us to be. Before our conception, he knew everything about us, and he can determine the characteristic features of our lives. As David put it, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That's a quote, right, from Psalm 139, how we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Esther might have been born a girl of merely ordinary beauty or even ugly, but in God's control of things, for his sovereign purposes, she was not. She might have been born into a situation where there was no kind relative to care for her when she was orphaned, but in God's providence, she was well looked after. And there he gets to to, to us. God knows best what is good and necessary for his children. So often our frustrations arise from our wishing the circumstances of either the past or the present were different. If only I had not been the only child, says one, while another says, if only I had not had brothers and sisters. Or perhaps comparing ourselves with others, we say, if only I had been better looking. Our highest wisdom is to submit to all the circumstances of life as they are and not to dwell on what we would wish them to be, but rather to recognize God's gracious control over them and rest in his perfect knowledge and concern for us. For example, why are both of my wife's parents in heaven? Now for seven and 20 years, and my parents are still alive sitting here in the front row. Why is that? It's the providence of God. He's got a reason for that. And it would be very easy, right, if you're maybe your parents passed away sooner than expected to, to really question, Lord, I don't understand, I don't get that. Or maybe perhaps um, you have to put one of your own children in the grave, which is never the way God ex- you know, planned it, if you will, uh, or, or designed it, but that could be part of his providence. Or perhaps it's something more superficial like the way you look and maybe some of the physical characteristics that you have that you don't like, you know, how you you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't like the way I look. And so, man, that plays into this whole cosmetic plastic surgery generation that we live in, right, where you you can go fix that and you can go make yourself look like you want to look rather than the the way God made you to look, right? And again... Some of that may be medically uh, important to do or necessary to do. I get that. Uh, there's there's uh, recommended uh, cosmetic surgery with like face cancer and other things like that or, or skin cancer, and I get that. I appreciate that. But the question is its motive, right? Motive is everything. Are you uh, resting in and, and rejoicing in God's providence in your upbringing and your family and your looks, right? I mean, this is very practical stuff. We, we also see God's providence here in the preferential treatment of the harem keeper. Notice verse 8. 
So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa in the custody of Hegai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven uh, choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the rest, or excuse me, to the best place in the harem. Again, drawing from the history of the day, Josephus, who was the Jewish historian, probably most well-known Jewish historian, wrote that there were 400 girls who had been rounded up for the king's harem. That's a lot of ladies. And in ancient times, eunuchs were placed in charge of harems for obvious reasons. It prevented them from messing around with the king's women. God, in his providence, however, moved in the heart of Hegai, this eunuch, in charge of Ahasuerus harem to show special favor to Esther. And so he kind of gave her a head start here. He, it seems like he kind of gave her so, some supplies, some special cosmetics and food uh, kind of ahead of time to get her going quicker uh, in her preparations. And then he reserved the nicest quarters in the harem for her and her seven maids. So she kind of had a leg up, if you will, on the rest of the women in the harem. And what, what God may have used to catch Hegai's eye was not just Esther's outward beauty, but her inner beauty. And the Hebrew language here indicates that, that Esther's graciousness and, and pleasantness, likely, pleasantness likely stood out amongst all the other perhaps jealous, greedy, self-absorbed women who were competing for the crown, perhaps a Cinderella uh, surrounded by her evil stepsisters. I'm not sure. That's just a picture that comes into my mind, but... Uh, again, ladies, what a great reminder of what Peter said in First, cha- uh, First Peter chapter three, verse three: Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So I think she was probably more Esther was probably more than just outwardly pretty. She was pretty from the inside out. And so she gained favor with her superiors, just like Joseph did. We read about that this morning. Just like Daniel, remember, he was uh, uh, asked, he appealed right away, hey, I don't want to have to eat this meat offered to idols. Can can I just have kind of vegetables and water? And he's like, yeah, sure. And uh, so God gave them favor. Nehemiah, the same thing. Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. I mean, it doesn't get any more uh, trusted than that, right? You're the guy that's supposed to taste all the food and drink before you give it to the king to make sure it's not poisoned, and so you don't just put anybody in that position. And so, again, all of this that God providentially orchestrated allowed these people, Nehemiah, Daniel, Joseph, and now Esther, to accomplish his will. We also see the providence of God in the advice of Mordecai. In the advice of Mordecai, notice verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she would not make them known, which comes into play later that uh, the king didn't know she was a Jew. But when he found out, he jumped into action to save her and her people. Uh, Verse 11, every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. 
So here's this doting dad, if you will, dad, you know, not her real dad, but he was a doting father to her father figure in her life, and he advised her to keep her Jewish nationality a secret. And uh, as we're going to see in the next chapter, generally speaking, the Jews were not well thought of in the land of exile. And if anyone found out that she was a Jew, she would have been out of the running for queen. And again, this is where we get into the moral ambiguity of the book of Esther, where you might kind of cock your head a little bit and scratch your head and go, hmm, that doesn't sound good, that doesn't look good. Because from this and other statements in the book, it's clear that the author was making the point that God protected and used both Mordecai and Esther in spite of the fact that they were not living according to the law that God had given to the people of Israel. Because if they had, they would have been maintaining a kosher diet, keeping the law, uh, and and again, their, their nationality would have been given away. It would have been obvious because they would have stuck out like a sore thumb, like God originally intended. That's why he gave them all these rules and restrictions in the first place. He wanted his people, the Jews, to be set apart from everyone else in the world. And apparently they were kind of just blending in to the Persian society. What's even more problematic is, as we move in further into the chapter, according to Jewish law, Esther was not to marry a Gentile, Deuteronomy chapter 7, or obviously have sexual relations with a man who is not her husband. That, in fact, is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 14. I mean, how do you miss this one? Um, You shall not commit adultery, right? And yet, that was the whole purpose for being in the harem. And they were living, again, at the same time when Ezra and Nehemiah both confronted the people of Israel about mixed marriages. You can see that in Ezra 9 and 10, Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 13. And I think Ezra and Mordecai could be contrasted with Daniel and his three friends that they were who were careful to keep the law while they were living in Babylon. They refused to eat the royal food and wine because it was unclean according to Jewish law. Apparently, Esther had no qualms about the food. Um, She was taking whatever was being provided for her. And so the question is, why would God overlook Esther and Mordecai's unfaithfulness and still use them to accomplish his purposes? How about we ask it this way? Why would God overlook your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness and still use us to accomplish his purposes? See, at the end of the day, it's not about our faithfulness, it's about what? God's faithfulness. And Esther and Mordecai are representative of the backslidden state of the Jewish nation at the time and the disobedience of the Jewish remnant in the Persian Empire. In other words, why would God want to restore and rescue these folks or restore and rescue them? That they were not living in a way that anybody would want to rescue them or restore them. 
In fact, again, Wearsby says it this way, is it any wonder that the name of God is absent from this book? Would you want to identify your holy name with such an unholy people? That's a whole other way of asking why is the name of God not in this book mentioned here. But the point is God promised to never leave or forsake his people. And even though this was a low point in the history of the Jews, God was still at work on their behalf. And the same applies to you and it applies to me, that God doesn't only work in our lives when we are on fire for him or, or, or close to him. Sometimes he uses us in spite of us. Amen? And he promises to never leave or forsake us and he continues to work behind the scenes on our behalf to get us back where he wants us to be. And just like he did and will continue to do to the wayward uh, uh, nation of Israel, he's doing that to this day, right? If, If you remember Romans 9, 10, and 11, right? There's a future for Israel. And God is still at work behind the scenes and we saw some of that this week, haven't we? God's up to something there. But his point is he's wanting to get them back to where he wants them to be. God's wooing them back to him through his gracious providence, even if it means rockets being launched between nations, right? That's all part of God's providence. Using sinful men, sinful nations, evil motives to accomplish his purposes. And uh, we see God's providence in how Esther really enjoyed or earned or the favor of everyone. Look at verse 12. Now when the turn of each lady, young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women... Ladies, just relax, okay? I know this sounds really enjoyable, right? Wow, it's like a spa day for six, six months. Um, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz, the king, king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless he, the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who, was taken, uh, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised, and Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Well, how did that happen? Well, because she was a looker, or she was really a, a sweetheart. Well, no, that, those things may have been true, but... It was God, right, who was paving the way here for her to uh, find favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Well, let's unpack these verses just a little bit. So you, you've got all these young virgins in the harem enrolled in a year-long course, custom designed to prepare them to be brought into the king's bedchamber for a one-night stand. Sorry, Veggie Tales. Um, that was cute, that was child-friendly, um, but this was not a um, beauty pageant or a talent show, I think is what they described it as, a little talent show, 
you know, before the king, and whoever, whoever the king liked the most, you know, would become his wife, right? Um, no, they had one shot at impressing the king, one night to prove themselves. And uh, again, so this is, they, they had a special diet plan, a special workout program, special perfume, for perfumes and cosmetics. I mean, this is like Bath and Body Works on steroids, okay? Um, all sorts of training and court etiquette. When the king says this, you say this. When, you, when he does this, you do this. Um, and whatever you do, don't ever say this or don't ever do this, right? This was just a kind of a coach in these, these women. And again, it was just a year-long spa treatment is what this was, being pampered and primped and massaged and manicured and seven maids waiting on you hand and foot, all for the purpose of making you look good and, 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 and smell good. Um, and be more attractive than every other woman. And then when, when, when your turn came, you could request anything by way of apparel, accessories. I mean, this is like going on a shopping spree, right? Free shopping spree at Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom's or, hey, pick out whatever you want. Now, again, the author here, which I appreciate, is very discreet about what, what went on in the king's bedchambers. It's not explicit in any way, but the fact that they went in from the harem of virgins and the next morning were placed in the harem of the concubines, you do the math, right? You figure it out. This was all about a sexual encounter. Why? Because their status changed. They, they were no longer a virgin. And so really, it seems like all the king cared about was how they performed in bed and if, if they could satisfy his lustful passions. And this was right in line with the, the um, if you know anything about the Arabian Nights, uh, the, the Middle Eastern folk tales that you know, we get Sinbad from and Aladdin from and Alibaba and uh, the, the Den of Thieves. And um, anyway, there's this emperor there who married a new wife each day and had her slain the next morning so he could be sure that she wouldn't betray him. That was a nice guy. Um, and yet there was one young lady that, told him a story on her first night, and he liked it so much that he asked her to tell him another story, and she kept telling him stories for 101, uh, uh, 1,001 nights. And that's actually the title of the, the book, uh, The Arabian Nights. So again, this is kind of the Persian culture, if you will. And, and, and so when it was Esther's turn, she just followed he guy's advice. And uh, this guy had obviously worked for the king for many years. He knew what the king liked and didn't like, so he just he coached her. Kind of told, him all, told, told her all the king's secrets, if you will. And then lastly, we see here um, God's providence in the king's choice to set his affection on her. Notice verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her uh, queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. Now, again, I'm reading between the lines here, so I'm admitting that there, there is some subjectivity to this, some speculation of this, but even though it says he loved her, I have a hard time seeing this, at least at this point, as nothing more than a casual, superficial relationship. He didn't even know where she was from. 
I mean, how do you not, hey, where are you from? You know, what's your heritage, right? Um, how did you get to Persia? When do I get to meet the fam? You know, I mean, it's like, doesn't, you don't know if any of that, some of that may have already happened, I'm not sure, but he still doesn't know that she's a Jew. I mean, can you imagine marrying someone you don't even know where they came from? In other words, don't do that. Kids, don't do that. Make sure you know who they're from, meet the fam, all that kind of stuff is important, right? Well, nevertheless, the king threw this coronation party for his new queen. He proclaims it a national holiday. Holiday, people got off work, uh, taxes were canceled, there was presents given, there was probably even fireworks. I don't know if they had fireworks back then. But, and by the way, this guy was a party animal, okay? This is the fourth banquet in the book, and we're only in chapter two, okay? So this guy was always throwing parties. And, and then there was this second gathering. Notice verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet been made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Uh, this, this second gathering may have been to add to the king's harem, which again is a possible indication of the superficial nature of his relationship. Just because he had gotten married to Esther didn't mean he was going to be faithful to her, settle down with her into a monogamous relationship. And yet, this is all part of God's providence. So Esther becomes the king's wife. That was the first strategic move God made. And the second strategic move was that Mordecai saved the king's life. And we can just look at this very quickly. Verse 21, in those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, that's an important little detail there, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So Mordecai was strategically positioned at the king's gate where the elders and leaders of the city made decisions and settled disputes. This was equivalent to the modern law courts. Uh, This is where it all went down, all the business, all the lawmaking. Um, And so it was here in the providence of God that Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And it was the two guys who guarded his door at night, right? These kings, right? They, They, you know... When they went to bed, you had to have somebody you trusted standing by your door to keep people from coming in and killing you in your sleep. Those are not the guys you want plotting your assassination. They're walking around with the key to the king's door. Hey, who wants this? You know? And so it may have been that they were traditionalists who resented the king for not following protocol and choosing to marry someone outside the noble families of the land. They they didn't want an outsider, a commoner, uh, on the throne, perhaps. We don't know what, why they were angry with him, but um, Mordecai reported the plot to Esther, who notified the king, and the would-be assassins were apprehended. They were tried, and they were hanged. Notice verse 22, but the plot became known to Mordecai. He told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. Which, by the way, some commentators say that there was a um, question here. Was it actually a hanging with a noose uh, or were they impaled on a stake? Because that was a common form of capital punishment. The Persians loved to shish kebab their enemies. And any traitors and rebels in Persia were, 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 were you know, a huge stake was made and they would just, you know, shish kebab them on top of that. 
And so that's perhaps what happened here. But then notice the last line there, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Take note of that. Don't forget that. Because that's going to come back into play in a very strategic way in chapter 6. The, the point was that this incident was just routinely recorded in the official chronicles of the kingdom, but Mordecai was not recognized or rewarded for saving the king's life, at least not right away. And again, let me remind us all that God keeps good records, okay? He made sure that it was properly recorded so that he could make good use of it at the right time in the future. Just like Joseph had befriended that fellow prisoner who he helped get out of prison and his kindness was completely forgotten for two years. And so, again, this is a great reminder that God's timing is perfect and he sees that, that, that no good work ever goes unrecognized or unrewarded. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Let me read this for you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. Maybe you have done something. Maybe you did something and no one recognized you. Your, your good deed, if you will, went unrewarded. Well, as Wiersbe says, our good works are like seeds that are planted by faith. And their fruits don't always appear immediately. And we're going to see this come into play, like I said, um, here in a few weeks. But these two incidents, Esther becoming queen and Mordecai exposing the assassination plot against the king, this sets the stage for the events that would be that, that start to unfold here um, in this next chapter, and uh, things get pretty exciting here in chapter three. So make sure you come back next week. But um, again, what are we seeing here? God placed two Jews in strategic positions inside the Persian regime, one in the king's bedroom and and the other at the king's gate. I mean, it doesn't get any closer than that. You're sleeping with the king and you're advising the king. God's got his people in place, okay? And again, what can we take away from this? I think it's this, that when we're in a situation where we don't know what God is up to, we need to hold on to what we do know about God. And as Derek Prime says in this commentary, he said, the things we know are greater than the things we do not know. Amen? Amen? Another way to say it is this, when we are tempted to question God's hand, we need to trust God's heart. You say, what does that mean? Well, where has God revealed his heart to us? Right here. We need to trust his word. And while we may not know what God is doing in any given situation, we know a lot about God. And that's what we need to trust in. That's what we need to hold on to and find hope in and peace, and comfort, and joy, and rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we may not know what the future holds, we know who holds the future, and um, what comfort that brings us.
And so, Lord, I don't know what's going on in everyone's life here uh, in this church who have, who've, who've come today, but you do. And I pray that this message would, would hit them right where they needed to be hit. Those that needed to be comforted, Lord, would you comfort them? Those that needed to be convicted, Lord, convict them. But most of all, Lord, would you conform all of us more to the image of Christ and, and as we seek to apply the, the, the principles and the implications that we find here in this great story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.